Okay, look, Miles. I know we usually work in chronological order, but Gabrielle Kinney is... I think she's definitely awesome enough to transcend our standard practice. Jay, aren't you supposed to be the one who's a stickler for rules? You know, good to be precise about these kind of things and all that. I'm being precise. I want to deviate from the normal way we do the show, and I want to spend a full episode talking about how much we love Gabrielle Kinney. Precisely. I don't know. I mean, I love Gabby too, but we've got a lot of titles to get through, and even more pouches. Okay, okay, I'll tell you what. Let's put it to a vote. There are two of us. It'll be a tie. Oh, no, no, that's why Tom's here. Hi. Tom? Tom Taylor. The Tom Taylor who writes all new Wolverine. Yeah, that's the one. Oh, oh man, wow. I mean, okay, n- no offense, Tom, but it, it does seem like you'd be kind of biased. Well, obviously he's going to be biased. What, you thought I was going to leave this to chance? It's good to be precise about these kinds of things. All right, look, I like Abby as much, if not more, than the next reasonable person, but she's only been around for, what, two and a half years? Tom, not to besmirch your work by any means, but do you think there's really a full hour's worth of continuity there? Minimum. Do tell. Well, first of all, she's a clone of a clone. Uh, I think that's about as many clones. Uh, she was created by a top-secret military project based on a top-secret military project, so you've got a lot right there. And, you know, that's even assuming we don't touch on the other sisters or Balana's relationship to Kimura or any of that stuff. Wait, Kimura? Laura's old handler, isn't she dead? Well, she is now. You really thought an exploding gas pipe was enough to take her out? Come on. Okay, what else have you got? Ooh, she adopted a wolverine. Two, if you count Laura. And she tried 25 with chicken? Mmm, 25 with chicken. And she got a pelican statue. A pelican statue? Home is where your pelican statue is. Yeah, okay. And she went to space. Oh, and she met Fang, who's alive. Promising. And she became a brood queen. Wait, a brood queen? She got better. Yeah, it's a time-honored Wolverine tradition. Huh, okay. She even got a code name of her very own. Is it Wolverine? Don't be ridiculous. It's Honey Badger. Dokken gave it to her. Whoa, whoa, who's letting Dokken hang around with teenagers? He's very murdery. Ah, uh, look, even if Gabby's nicest wasn't contagious, she's got enough dangerous friends to keep anyone from messing with her. Okay, well, obviously Laura, but who else? The Guardians of the Galaxy. And her best friend, of course. Jonathan? Deadpool. What? <laughs> I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 185 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to an episode we are very, very excited about. But first, an announcement that we're also excited about in a totally different way. It's more of a reminder than an announcement at this point, since we've been talking it up for a while. But Emerald City Comic Con is only two weeks out. You should come see us. We're going to be at Table T11 and Artist Alley all weekend. We will have rad merch. I assume we're going to have the pictures by now, but we're doing limited runs of both the Magneto Made Some Valid Points shirt in red and purple and um, a metallic version of the Cyclops Resist shirts and a bunch of other stuff. And also my mom's going to be there and it's going to be amazing. I know I keep saying that, but I'm really excited. It's her first convention. I'm really excited, too. We also, of course, have our live show on Saturday, so please, come to that. Not that we wouldn't talk to an empty room. I mean, that's kind of what we do when we record, but we like seeing your smiling faces. I mean, that is literally what I at least am doing right now. I'm kind of talking to a wall more than an empty room, but still. We also have our annual listener meetup and podcast birthday party. That's going to be at Phoenix Comics. Once again, we're super excited. And that does not require a convention badge. It's all ages. It is Saturday night, March 4th. We hope that you'll come join us, um, eat fancy cookie cake, and celebrate. And probably there will be hijinks of some sort. We're still working that out. But for now, in present day and present time, we have a guest that we're so excited to get on the show. And that is Tom Taylor, who is has has been writing All New Wolverine for the last several years and has just now begun a run on X-Men Red. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for, for coming on. We've been loving your work. I mean, All New Wolverine has consistently been one of our favorite X-Comics since it started. And having just read the first issue of X-Men Red immediately before recording, based on when we're recording, it looks like it's going to be as well. 
Ah, thank you. And and look, thank you. I'm a, I'm a big fan of yours too. You are definitely my favorite X-Men related podcast. Um, you, you guys just make me happy every time I see you. I go, yes, they are pleasant, wonderful, nice, loving people. Um, and yeah, and thank you for all of your support of All New Wolverine, in particular Gabby. Well, uh, Gabby is delightful. So I actually, I want to start off with a Gabby related question before we go sure. anywhere else, because I've been wondering about this for, I guess, years now. And, and we brought it up in the cold open. We brought it up in the, the patter at the end of last episode. Does the Pelican statue have an origin or is it, is it just sort of specific to the comic? It's kind of weird, actually. The Pelican statue, while it doesn't have an origin, it does have like it does have long lasting ramifications. Uh, it gets a name in the very next issue of All New Wolverine. Um, it, it is the impetus for the beginning of the next story. You are going to see it in the future in old man, old woman, uh, Laura. And yeah, so it's incredibly important. This statue, it's not just a statue. It's a piece of them. I feel so good about this. Yeah, I just um, <laughs> reread all of the only Wolverine issues right up until Orphans of X to make sure they were fresh in my mind over the last week um, before this interview. And yeah, that Pelican statue, I, I'd forgotten how much I loved it. And I'm happy to hear that it's going to gain a larger role. Um, so I should say, before we get any further, I am uh, doing this episode sick and on not very many hours of sleep due to that fact. I caught a cold from an alien child who crash-landed on Roosevelt Island. It was bad times. I'm sure it won't go anywhere worse. So apologies if I sound kind of weird. Wait, seriously? You were on Roosevelt? You were in New York and you didn't even tell me? Well, I was very, very sick. I had to be healed by, like, Deadpool. It was kind of strange. Dick move. <laughs> but um, anyway, before we dive into the interview, um, Tom, how are things? I mean, you've been writing a whole lot of new stuff, right? Yeah, no, completely. I, you know, we're absolutely buried, but buried in a wonderful way. Like, not six feet under or anything, just buried by lots and lots of fun work. Nice. Well, so I was thinking we could talk some about All New Wolverine and some about um, X-Men Red. And since All New Wolverine's been going for longer, how about we start there? Good place. All right. So for any of our listeners who have somehow missed the last several years of us raving about this book, All New Wolverine is um, the, the current main Wolverine title featuring best and central and sole remaining actual Wolverine, Laura Kinney. Um, along with Gabby, who's a young clone of hers, and Jonathan, who's an actual, actual actual Wolverine, whom they procured from Squirrel Girl. It's delightful. It is one of our very favorite books of the X-Line and has been for the last several years. And it's got a lot of continuity hooks. So it's very much the kind of thing we really, really like to sink our teeth into on this show. And if you're more familiar with the movies than the comics, then you would have seen Laura as X-23 in Logan recently. The one in the comics is a little bit different. She's older, she's got a different story, but same basic concept. Still very scrappy. Yep. And this series has seen Laura step into the identity of, of Wolverine. She'd, before, when she'd used a codename, it had just been X-23, which was what she'd, she'd been called, you know, her, her original experiment name. Um, Tom... It's a few years old now, but in, in writing that transition, having her step into that role, what were your considerations, both narratively and, and in terms of how you how you characterized Laura, where you wanted to put the spotlight and what kind of growth you wanted to show? Uh, I think that word growth is incredibly important. I think what I wanted for Laura was an evolution. And I wanted to certainly not forget the past that she's had, uh, the trauma that she's experienced, where she's come from. But also I wanted to show someone who's come through all of that and can still be a compassionate person, can still take all of that and want to fight for others um, and be truly heroic. And, you know, for Laura, for a lot of people, for a lot of fans, Laura is someone that they look to, particularly for, you know, victims of abuse or people who have had trauma in their lives. They see, they really connect with Laura. And I've had a lot of people contact me, particularly after our Orphans of X uh, storyline to talk about how important her evolution is. Like the fact that her past isn't ignored, the fact that she was, you know, she did have a pimp. She was, uh, she was put through horrible stuff by a lot of horrible men in her life. And we don't shy away for that, but nor do we dwell on it, nor does it, nor does it define her. One of the things I really liked about where All New Wolverine started 
is that it seemed to come very directly out of the Logan legacy and the Wolverines series that happened right before Secret Wars. You know, we see Laura start to really think about what it means to be Logan's descendant, to be Logan's, I mean, legacy, it's, it's right there in the title, right down to wearing the yellow and the blue. And I love that bit of continuity. I love that you can jump right into all new Wolverine you know, with number one, and you can learn all you need to know about the character. Although, listeners, I do recommend you read all the old X-23 stuff. It's really good. But if you've been following everything that leads up to that, it's just such an organic, natural, uh, and gradual transition. Yeah, like, look, that's incredibly important. And that's, I think that's the that's the job of a writer. If you don't know the material, you need to make sure you know it. Um, read it all and study it. And if you're not 100% on the character, make sure your voice is clear, their voice is clear in your head. Um, and it was incredibly important to me. Yes, I read Wolverines. Yes, I read everything leading up to it. Obviously, you know, Marjorie Lou's car- uh, series, everything, uh, Innocence Lost and Target X and making sure that everything that happened in our series made sense for her character. It wasn't just thrown in there because I thought it was a cool idea. So I want to build a little bit on that concept of legacy because something we've seen and are about to see more of with the old woman Laura story is a lot of very, very direct callbacks to stories that focused on Logan as Wolverine and to, to seminal stories of that run and of that character um, with, with, with themes or with, with titles or motifs that Laura is now revisiting. When you're doing that, when you're writing a character who is, and a series and a story that's so much about legacy, how do you go about referencing and building on those antecedents without being bogged down by them? Um, look, that's an interesting question. With Civil War II, I wanted Laura, you know, for me, Laura wouldn't buy Civil War. She, um, which was an interesting conversation we had, and she makes it kind of clear in the comics that she doesn't want to see heroes fighting other heroes and people becoming jaded. She wants the heroes to stand up and be heroic, um, just like Jean Grey, actually. Uh, so for me, yes, we have Civil War II in the title, and yes, there's there's heroes fighting heroes within it, but we're also examining exactly what that means and, and hoping for something better. Uh, with Enemy of the State too, that was that was a little bit different. I had a story that I wanted to tell, and it was actually uh, Mark, our editor, who said, "Why don't we call this Enemy of the State too?" And there were certainly things that reflected that, but I think this was more this was more a story for Laura. This was where I wanted to get rid of the trigger scent. I wanted to I wanted this sort of crux, this one thing that could control her at the drop of a hat to be gone from her life, and also for the biggest threat of her life, the cruelest person that still exists in her life to be gone and for her to be past that. That was one of the things I really liked about Enemy of the State too, because yeah, I mean, exactly. Those were the two big dangling plot threads from Laura's past. These two things that were haunting her, the trigger scent and Kimura. And I loved how right before we jumped into Marvel Legacy, we were just sort of closing that chapter of Laura's life, making it so she could really be her own person. I mean, obviously, she still um, has her past haunting her. Orphans of X really showed us that, just these people who had been traumatized by what the the assorted Wolverine-ish characters had done. But just the idea that this character has, has had this trauma and now has the opportunity to decide who she's going to be, like, for me, that just seems so much of the book's mission statement. Yeah, well, for me, I mean, the trigger set in Kimura were these two incredibly depowering elements, like the idea that for this woman who hasn't been in control for so much of her life, um, I felt this was, you know, I wanted to have her gain that control back, and particularly with the decision for her to be the one to kill Kimura, you know, for her to be the one that takes that control back. I mean, one of the big things is that Laura doesn't kill, and and I've made that very clear from the first issue. And I think it's incredibly important that she has a higher ideal. But with this one person, with this one absolute monster in her life, I was like, okay, she can kill this one. (laughs) Yeah, that was so cathartic. I totally agree. Exactly. I think a reasonable exception to the rule. Yeah. One of the things we've seen Laura do, and one of the things that's been, I think, really, really critical to her defining herself as a character separate from her past is, is that she's now got this, yeah, more than a de facto sister in her life, Gabby, who is yeah. in some ways sort of her, her 
the the kid she's mentoring in the ways that we've seen, you know, prior Wolverine mentor kids, but much, much more of a peer. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, their relationship and where that came out of, like whether whether the plan was always for Gabby to be the one of the sisters who ended up sticking around and what difference it's made to have her there in the book and in Laura's life. Look, I'll be honest, um, Gabby just came out organically on the page. I always knew what I kind of wanted to do with Four Sisters, but I didn't know quite the character she was going to be and how integral she was going to be. One of the reasons we had Warren in there from the very beginning is because we wanted something to balance Laura's darkness. We wanted something that, you know, she could be quite stoic and quite, uh, you know, and violent and the rest of it. And we wanted something to create that balance. And from the second Gabby was stealing stale pizza from Laura's fridge, we knew, hang on, this is the light to to uh, Laura's dark. Like, this is what we need. This is what Laura needs. She needs someone to look after. She needs someone to that she can fight for throughout this. And that's why you sort of saw Warren phased out a little bit or just completely ignored. There were so many scenes of Warren that were just left in, like, left on the cutting room. I... I wrote pages and pages in all these different scripts and he was the first thing that we kept editing out. Um, so sorry to any fans of that relationship, but Laura's. You know. I, I feel like anyone who's that much of a fan of, of Angel has to be kind of use, used to that. I suspect that he's the first thing that ends up edited out of a lot of stories. Yeah. <laughs> Quite possibly, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it became clear that what was most important was Laura and Gabby's relationship and that, and that feeling of family. And that so often X-Men are defined by their romantic relationships and to have a family relationship that's the absolute heart of this book, I think, was different and important. Uh, Gabby also, something I really appreciate about her, and this is more a, a comment than a question, is that she, she and Laura in combination do a really good job of communicating that there's not one way to respond to or grow from or develop relative to trauma. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, and that's the beauty of having two so, you know, two characters that are so very different and see the world so differently, but, are, you know, but love each other so much and are so involved in each other's lives. And one of the thing I really, one thing I really love about Gabby's presence in the book. I mean, I I, I was on the same page as, as you, Tom, albeit from a very different perspective. Like that first scene of Gabby stealing pizza from Laura's fridge, like I, I loved the character. But I think the point where I realized that I loved the character's role in the book specifically and in Laura's life specifically was actually in the Squirrel Girl issue, a delightful issue all around. But the part where the issue keeps cutting back and forth between memories of Logan and Laura and memory and, and the present situation of Laura and Gabby, realizing that Laura is not only stepping into the role of Wolverine the superhero, Wolverine the trauma victim trying to, you know, redefine individuality, but also Wolverine, the mentor. And for me, that was such an element of, of growth for Laura. No, she's not just stepping into it, though. She's stepping beyond it because the point is that she's sticking around for Gabby. She's bringing Gabby with her yeah. in ways that Logan didn't necessarily for Laura. She's, you know, she, in, in some ways, she's less equipped in terms of things like life experience to teach a new person how to, you know, how personing works. But in some ways, she's been able to, to learn from, you know, the time and experience she's had a lot more effectively than Logan. Totally. Ergo, best Wolverine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's all absolutely true. I think Laura, you know, how Laura was had been kind of cast aside by Logan, and Logan has this, this thing of being that guy who's very stoic and doesn't want the people around him being hurt. So, you know, he's not doing this for for the wrong reasons in his mind, but it still hurts, you know, and you, and you see Laura, I think in that squirrel girl issue standing on the side of the road as he drives away and she doesn't want to do that to Gabby. Um, and she comes to that realization through the family of a squirrel as you do. Um, I should point out that I wrote this. So I had a really terrible fever. <laughs> I was lying in a hotel bed, unable to sleep and I was emailing my editor because we decided we weren't going to do this story uh, or someone had. And I was like, you have to let me write this story. You need to understand how important this was. And like, I was so, so 
adamant that we had to write this. And then I woke up in the morning after I'd convinced him and got, oh, man, was that just all the fever or do I actually have a story here? Um, <laughs> but uh, fortunately, yeah, it turns out that it worked. And I do absolutely love this issue. Um, it's, I think it's incredibly important for the growth of Laura and for the growth of their relationship. And it was also important for the squirrel. <laughs> right? That squirrel's life has changed. And, well, and, and, I know. And introduced right. the third member of the, the Wolverine triumvirate, the, you know, Jonathan, the actual Wolverine. That's exactly right. Yes. I mean, they wouldn't have a family without that. They'd be two girls and a pelican. Um, this is, without that, we wouldn't have Jonathan. Right. And for me also, that issue started out a period that I love of All New Wolverine, where it was just sort of, I guess, partially genre hopping and partially tone hopping. I mean, going from that, and then shortly after, we have her dealing with the magical side of the Marvel Universe with Doctor Strange and the super science side with the Wasp and with Ant-Man's costume. And for me, that was such a cool way of seeing all these different angles of who Laura and Gabby are now, who Laura is at this phase of her life and who Gabby is finally getting out of the the project she'd been raised in. And was that like sort of a deliberate decision to just do sort of a tour of the Marvel Universe? Or was that just where the story led in terms of Laura dealing with the aftermath of the Sisters Project? Uh, it's just kind of where the story led. I mean, after that, I think we fought Fin Fang Foom. Um, <laughs> you know, we had Iron Man and we have had Captain Marvel. And we just had fun. You know, we'd established these characters. We'd established, you know, they'd gotten past one incredibly difficult period. Um, and it was time for them to have some adventures together and just see what that felt like. Um, I don't, I actually like to change the tone on almost every single arc. Um, if we've gone too serious, I like to have a bit of like a really, you know, something that alleviates that for the next thing. Um, even if it's just a stopgap to going back into something quite serious. Uh, you'll see, so after our Orphans of Exarch, which is probably the most intense we've done, um, our next issue is uh, Gabby and Deadpool teaming up with Jonathan, the actual Wolverine, for an entire issue. Like, Laura's not even in this issue very much. Um, and it's, you know, it's one of the most fun comics I think I've ever had anything to do with. I have a woman who's my first reader and she's read everything I read. She's my next-door neighbour, they're my best mate. Uh, she reads everything I've read from about the I've written from the age of 16. And she's she's described that comic as one of the most perfect comics that I've ever been part of, which I think is high price. Can't wait to read it. So speaking of, of upcoming books, I kind of want to transition over to X-Men Red at this point. Sure. Yeah, which as, as this episode go, goes up, will be have been out for about um, a week and a half. And I should say to anyone who's listening right now, there are going to be spoilers for the first issue of the series in the upcoming conversation. If you want to skip those, and I mean, there's actually not going to be much after that. So if you want to skip those, just wait till next week. <laughs> I guess and listen to episode 186. But yeah, so to talk about X-Men Red, um, I feel like many of our listeners are probably already quite familiar, but this is a new core X-Men book. We've had X-Men Blue with the Time Displaced Original 5 and X-Men Gold with more traditional team, and this is X-Men Red. And at the center of this team is, and this is a spoiler for, you know, the massive events that have been going on for the last few months, so OG Jean Grey is now back, and she's alive, for real. She is disconnected from the Phoenix Force, and she is leading an X-Men team, and this is the X-Men team that this title is about. Yeah, so the lineup of that, aside from Jean Grey, we have Nightcrawler, Wolverine, that of course being best Wolverine, Laura, Honey Badger, Namor, the Wakandan mutant gentle, and the new character, Trinary. So I guess let's start with that. Um, how much of the team lineup was yours? How much of it was handed to you with a, we want all of these guys in a book together, make it happen? Uh, it was it was a really interesting conversation. I got a call. I was at a friend's party, and it was 1 a.m., and I was standing at the top of a very, very, very loud bar in a toilet talking to Mark, um, and he's like, do you want to write an X-Men book? I'm like, what? The X-Men, what? Uh, and eventually I got through to what they were offering me, and I was incredibly excited. And the only thing they really said was, it's going to be Jean Grey's book. It's going to be Jean leading a team. Who would you like? And I had probably about a week to think about it, and we, we went through a bunch of names, and there were reasons we couldn't use certain people, reasons why you know some I wanted couldn't be used, reasons why something they wanted, I was like, eh. Um, and it was really interesting. The way we found this team was mainly through the story, um, which is always a great way to find a team, you know, if, if we build something for a reason. Uh, obviously, I really wanted to use Laura and Gabby because neither had been 
in an X-Men team for a while, um, G- uh, Laura not since uh, new X-Men. And I thought, you know, we want this Wolverine to be part of this team. And I wanted to take Gabby with us because I wanted that, you know, I, I need my character that brings great levity to a situation. Uh, Namor is, uh, or is a character that we needed for a very specific story reason. Um, gentle, I wanted for a lot of different reasons, but that won't even be clear until about issue four. Um, and, and for Trinary or Trinary, however you'd like to say her name, um, I felt creating a mutant like her, um, again, not another white person from America, someone from, from somewhere different, um, which is when the X-Men, you know, the X-Men is supposed to be inclusive and supposed to be diverse and supposed to represent more than just New York. Um, her character is incredibly important and her and Jean together is very important. Uh, and then obviously you've got someone like Gambit coming into it as well. And Nightcrawl, who's just amazing, who was actually the first person I said I wanted to use. So there are two genes running around the Marvel Universe right now, and the one who you've got is one who's been around for much longer and as a result of that written wildly inconsistently over the years. And I'm wondering, um, you know, and and this is her first time back in a very, very long time, what are your go-to points for identifying and sort of finding your Jean Grey? Um, look, I've, again, just like anything else, I've, I read a lot and I, and I start to get a sense of the character, but with Jean, it's been interesting because as you say, she's been written wildly different. If you look at Grant Morrison's work compared to Chris Claremont's work, it's, it's two different characters. Um, and I certainly go to Grant's work a lot, particularly where he was kind of getting her to, um, in that book. And I, I try to find a voice that way, but it's been interesting. I have to say I've been writing something for the last week, which is the most gene-centric story I've ever told, and I've found her voice more in that than I have anywhere else. Um, and it's it's re- about remembering what her ideals are and what she wants to do and wh- how she wants this world to be. Um, and then you find, obviously, because she's a telepath, she's a very empathetic person that comes with being able to stare into people's minds unless you're an absolute freak. Um and she's a very compassionate person. She's somebody who truly does want the best for the world. Um, she does sometimes fill that kind of matriarch role where she does want to, you know, not, not, not in a mothering way, not in a nagging way, but in wanting to protect everybody and everything around her. And it's interesting that her voice kind of comes out through her goals and, th- and through what she tries to do. Yeah, I really enjoy the scene in X-Men Red number one where she's addressing, you know, the entire world on a political level in a way that we don't see nearly as much as I would expect us to see in a book like X-Men. I mean, I think the scene that actually called me back to the most was surprisingly Uncanny X-Men number 200 where Magneto's on trial and he's addressing the world. But just that level of let's talk about what the role of the mutant, what, what the role of mutants are in the world and what the role of mutants should be in the world. And that kind of strength, that kind of unhesitating, compassionate confidence. Like, for me, that was the thing in the issue that said Jean Grey most of everything. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that's that strength is a huge part of her as well. I mean, she's been dead and she doesn't have time to for for anything else. She doesn't want to... I, I wrote in the thing that I'm writing right now, a bit of a spoiler, but I wrote that she, she basically... She's come back to life, but she doesn't want to come back to the life that she left. She doesn't want to accept the world for how it is. She wants to change it. And most characters couldn't say anything like that and be taken seriously, but Jean Grey can. She is somebody who has the strength of will and the power and the compassion to want this world to be a better place and to stop it from the course we're currently on. You talked about her as as a matriarch and sort of as a as an inspirational and, and directing figure. And she's a character who gets written a lot kind of as a symbol or as a role more than a person. How do you get around that and past that? Um, I think you get around that and past that by reminding people of the people she's protecting, by actually giving them real connections. She's not protecting them because they're an object and because they're hers and she owns them. She's protecting them because she loves them. Um, You know, you assemble her friends and her family around her and you watch her work. 
um, then she's not a symbol. Then she she is she isn't indestructible. She isn't infallible. She can make mistakes. She can, you know, she can she can act out of out of a passionate place. She can overact. She can get angry because somebody's throwing things at a friend of hers. Um, she is a person. Uh, she's not a symbol. And yeah, talking about the relationships she has. That, I think, has always been one of the character's greatest strengths, and that comes through big time in Red, specifically with Nightcrawler. Like, you mentioned Nightcrawler was one of the first characters you wanted, and I'm very impressed you were able to pry him away from X-Men Gold. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, that dynamic. I mean, I think it's easy to forget that Nightcrawler and Jean haven't spent as much time on the page together as a lot of people remember them spending, just because Nightcrawler went off to Excalibur, Jean died for quite a while, and then was in X-Factor. But that voice, just that sense of these two old friends who are so very different from one another, but have such similar ideals and just so much history, so many like inside jokes that that comes through beautifully. And also it's just nice to see Kurt written fun. Like there hasn't been a lot of fun Kurt over the last many years. Fun and idealistic. Yeah, exactly. And I always see Kurt as fun and idealistic. I I don't know why, like, I don't know what it is, which books specifically have influenced me that way, but I just think, I just think that's a great side of him. And Again, if you've got Gene being a bit too serious, because they share these ideals, um, he can take her down a peg, but also back her up in every single way. Um, and, you know, I've, I've heard them described as, you know, Gene's the heart and he's the soul. And I, I do believe that. And I think you're going to see a lot of that in X-Men Red. Oh, man. I, I, that's one of the things I'm most excited about. But talking about some of the other characters, so you mentioned we'll find out why um, Gentle fits in the book as the plot goes, so obviously don't want to spoil that. But I thought it was fascinating that he show, he showed up in this book as, as a major X-Men character because he's been around for a little while, but he's been used so seldom. Like, I think the most prominently I recall him being used was in, uh, I think it was called X-Men Worlds Apart. It was a miniseries about Storm and, and Black Panther. Actually, can we do a brief recap of who he is for folks unfamiliar with the character? So for anyone who doesn't know Nesno, uh, known better as Gentle, uh, he's actually a Wakandan mutant. And his power is that he can get, he's incredibly strong. We're talking one of the strongest mutants that's ever existed. Um, But his strength causes him pain. So the stronger he gets, the more pain he's in to the point where if he used his full power, it could kill him. Um, He has adamantium tattoos. Actually, I'll take that back. He has vibranium tattoos that try to contain that. And he's a very nonviolent person because of the pain that violence causes him. So he tends to spend a lot of time meditating. And it's probably his nonviolence that draws me to him. The, I love the idea of super powerful people who don't want to hurt other people. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I think he's perfect for Gene's team. Uh you know, on that, that's that's why I created a character, nothing to do with X-Men, but I created a character called Velzod uh, in Earth 2 for DC, and he was a, a pacifist Superman. And, you know, containing that power and how they choose to use the power is make great storytelling. Yeah, I'm excited to actually see him in a more central role. I mean, X-Men has, X-Men has such a deep bench of these younger characters who have been students or characters who have been rescued or whatever and seeing them get a chance to shine a little more is is awesome also like jay i think you pointed out um gentle's powers are kind of like strong guys powers kind of like guido carousella's but gentle is so much less obnoxious a little bit we've seen that's that <laughs> with 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 strong guy it's kind of almost the reverse and that it's the energy absorption part of his powers that that cause him pain and the expression of those in the you know feats of strength that relieve it all right, so I'm calling it here. We need a um, a road trip buddy comedy with uh, Nesno and Guido. It'll be great. Uh, Tom, you can write it if you want. I know you're not busy at all. Duh. Is Guido still running hell? Uh, no, no, he got out and grew a beard. Okay. <laughs> he was he was standing alongside Jean as she came back and said goodbye to the Phoenix Force. I remember that much. Yes. Yup. Yeah. I, I don't think he spoke, but he was there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they didn't want to give him speaking uh, pay for that for that issue, I guess. No, no, fair enough. But yeah, just seeing those those previously almost background characters get a chance in the spotlight, that's great. And I mean, especially in a current X-Men world where gold is a lot of classic characters and blue is new versions of the most classic characters, seeing this unexpected grab bag in red is exciting. 
Yeah, and as I said, it's all for story reasons. So those characters are there because we need them to be there, because Jean needs them to be there, or because she can help them, or vice versa. You you mentioned Jean saying goodbye to the Phoenix Force, which kind of brings us to a question that's that's very much on my mind, having having now seen the first issue of X Men Red, which is whether we're going to get what what kind of a transition we're going to see, whether we're going to see what happens in the gap between Resurrection and X-Men Red, because clearly a lot. Yeah, look, I I think I can tell you this, and, and Marvel will tell me if I've, made, if I've said the wrong thing, <laughs> but I've actually been working for the last week or so on that exact story. I've been, because we didn't quite know how, how Resurrection was going to wrap when I was writing the first X-Men Red, we weren't quite sure what reunions we were going to see in that book. We, we sort of held off and just leapt into X-Men Red, uh, but I'm actually going back and telling a story that is post-resurrection before Red, and it's everything that I think fans will want. It's everything I wanted after I read that and read mine and went, oh, all of this is missing and I want to see it. Uh, so it's, it is Jean talking to her friends for the first time. It is Jean, you know, the kind of, I don't want to spoil the character she's going to talk to, but it's lots of characters that she hasn't really had a relationship with that people desperately wanted her to, that, she, you know, she hasn't met people like Laura before. Um, and it's and it's important for Red and important for Resurrection, important for Jean to have all of these connections. You know, talking to old man Logan for the first time when she's not a waitress in a bar in an egg in her own mind. Uh, you know, it's things like that. It's these are I think this is where you're going to see all of that in this one oversized annual and I mean, this also provides a great opportunity to see what Jean is like in a world without Cyclops, or at least without the Cyclops that she knew, because for so much of X-Men, yes, she was a strong character in her own right, but if you were describing Jean Grey, one of the first things most people would say would be Cyclops' girlfriend, Cyclops' partner, Cyclops' wife. And so to see her, as much as I loved that relationship, just in a world where she's Jean Grey, first and foremost, her own person— that's one of the things I'm excited about seeing in her relationships with other people, what it's like when it's just her and those other people and nobody mediating. Absolutely. Yeah, agreed. I feel like in some ways this is the first chance that adult Jean Grey has ever really gotten to step past the Silver Age. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And we're really, you know, she's not just stepping past it, she's flying over it. Um, She's coming into her own in a huge way. There is a bit of fallout with Scott um, in that story that I'm writing, there, there is a bit of, you know, it doesn't quite define the story, but it, it does hang over it. Um, but post that, you know, he's dead, he's gone, she's doing something huge. Like, I have to embalm him all over again, which seems like a <laughs> huge yeah. pain, but... Yeah, I don't know. I just, in my mind, honestly, his body just disappeared when the phoenix did. Should we go with that? That's canon now. Yeah. That's... That that seems reasonable. You heard it here first, guys. Um, but speaking speaking of Jean's Gray, we put out a call for listener questions, and the one we got from I think about half a dozen people immediately was, "Are we going to see much of the two genes interacting?" Um, I will say probably not, and I'm sorry to say that, uh, but because Jean isn't in there, that that the other Jean isn't there in that moment when the Phoenix has said goodbye. And, and honestly, I'm picking up from the second Resurrection Ends. Um, it's difficult to get to the young Jean. Um, but I urge every single one of you, if you haven't, to read Dennis Hopeless's Jean Grey because it's awesome. Seriously. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, Hopeless is, has been one of our other consistently favorite writers over the last many, many years. We also had a number of all-new Wolverine-related questions, or at least all-new Wolverine-adjacent questions, and I figured one we could all talk about was... An anonymous listener who asked on Tumblr, what did you think of the portrayal of Laura in the movie Logan? Um, Look, I absolutely loved it. It, It's kind of weird to have had, you know, at that stage I had this character who existed in my head for two years and I'd spent every single day with her. Um, And seeing her fairly faithfully portrayed, certainly as far as, you know, Innocence innocence Lost and Target X, not our Laura, not where we'd grown her to, but um, but certainly the Laura that I, I do feel, I do feel they just did her right. Um, and 
it was I was incredibly emotional watching it, and it was it's a very odd experience to go along and see a character that you feel so connected to um, up on the big screen. And look, I, I absolutely loved it. I think they did a great job, and I hope beyond hope that she is the next Wolverine in that universe. Seriously, I've I've been wondering where the X universe is going to go. I mean, we have this new young cast, so it seems like they're going to just continue on in this increasingly convoluted continuity. But at the same time, I mean, Disney bought uh, Fox's movie division, so I don't know. But either way, we've seen Logan. We've seen so much of Logan, and that's one of the things I love in the comics about Laura is that she shows what can come next. And to see that in the movies, especially with such a ridiculously talented actress, that would be incredible. Absolutely. What I am hoping for, and what I am hoping for possibly somewhat futilely considering a lot of things, is that there's going to be a new generation of X-Men fans who who get to know the X-Men through the movies and for whom Daphne Keene is Wolverine. <laughs> that would be... I think that's perfect. And You know, that sort of thing has happened before. Not on, like, the big screen, but on the small screen, there are a lot of people for whom Wally West is the Flash and Jon Stewart is Green Lantern. That can happen. A lot of people, like me... Very specifically. Oh, me too. Me too. Wally West was my flash. I get I get so angry at Barry Allen Flash. Like, I mean, I I I refused to watch the TV show for like two and a half years because it was Barry Allen, and he's not the right Flash. <laughs> I understand. Well, Wally was my Flash. Kyle Rayner was my Green Lantern because that's what I was reading at the time. Yup. Oh, I love Kyle's mask. It kind of reminds me of uh, Maverick's mask. We actually just got to Maverick in the show. And both of those masks make me wonder, like, does that hurt your nose? I feel like that would hurt your nose. It's got it right. I assume I assume lanterns have a way around it. But the great thing about Kyle Rayner as Green Lantern is he's what happens when a nerd becomes Green Lantern. When you get the power ring and you've watched a ton of anime. When you get the power ring yeah. and you have the sensibilities of an animator or a cartoonist. Right. Um, but we digress, as as is our way, to be fair. As we are want to do. <laughs> yep. um, speaking of all-new Wolverine, actually, I want to go back to one of our questions, which is, i just just hoping for some reassurance on this point. We know that it's part of Wolverine's power set to be able to maintain as many simultaneous titles as necessary. All-new Wolverine's not going anywhere, right? Like, she's, she's on the team, but she's still going to be having her own solo adventures with Gabby? I can't say at this stage. I'm sorry to say, I can't give you confirmation i can uh, tell you that we have at least three more like three stories planned we've got our deadpool we've got our next orphans of x we've got old woman laura and i can't say anything beyond that okay well as long as uh you're writing laura and gabby somewhere then i think that's the important part oh so i have this 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 is this is a, a slightly deep dive question um and an, another anonymous listener uh, wrote in on Tumblr to ask, in all-new Wolverine number 30, how exactly did Laura get the bullets out of everyone's heads? Uh, is, she, was there a specific mechanism, or is this just sort of a rule of cool, let it be, it's a comic book moment? No, she literally hacked them out with her claws um, out of every single one of their brains, which is revolting, but true. Um, and then waited for the for the for all the dead tissue that she'd removed to have the live tissue take over and heal those wounds. Aren't you glad you asked? I think about stuff. I love healing factors. They're so much fun. Right? Yeah, they're so useful. Yeah. It's good to be precise. That's that was actually a lot of fun in the um the storyline with the, that I referenced very briefly earlier. Um with the contagion coming to Earth from space, like having all of those characters with healing factors, having old man Logan and Dokken and and Deadpool and Gabby and Laura all going around healing people, like if the issue with Squirrel Girl was one of the big defining ones for Laura, for me, that really was as well. Just seeing all of these killers, all of these killers with terrible pasts, using their powers very specifically to heal, to sacrifice themselves to heal other people, like, that was freaking moving. I, I was not expecting that uh, storyline to hit me as hard as it did. I'm happy to hear it. It's, um, look, I, here's the thing. For me, I like my heroes very, very, very heroic. I like them to be to not have the kind of, to not look for the easy answers, to not resort to violence all the time. And for that one where the claws stay in, uh, I think it's incredibly important for our team. And what's interesting, I, well, not what's interesting, but what we were kind of setting up there was this moment of them acting like true heroes was also the reason why the Orphans of X came for them because they they couldn't see them in this light. They didn't want to see them in this light. 
you know, they were always animals to them and that angered them more than anything else they'd ever done in a way. Certainly triggered them. Yeah, and just, God, it, it, Orphans of X are such sad but also believable characters. like the way that one wrapped up, too. But um, we actually, speaking of uh, believable characters, sort of, uh, we have a question from Kevin on Tumblr. And Kevin says, Gabby's such a wonderful and delightful character. Do you find yourself having to dial back from having too much Gabby in a given scene or issue? Uh, look, I, I have too much of everything in every given issue and every scene. Uh, I tend to overwrite a lot. I tend to, so I wrote a 30-page story last night, and having spent so long on it, I found it was 35 pages, and then I had to cut. And I do that on everything I write. And in that cutting, you tend to get down to the essence. There are some killer lines that you go, oh, my God, that needs to be in there. But you just have to say goodbye to it. Um, and it's the same for Gabby and it's the same for Laura and it's the same for everybody else in the book. Um, and you do miss that. I mentioned earlier, like there are whole scenes, there are pages and pages of Warren that never made it into the book. Um, and some of them were really cool, great beats and cool epic moments. But, you know, you just have to edit. So finally, um, we've got one, one more listener question. Um, and an anonymous listener is wondering on Tumblr, what's your go-to comics comfort book the, as a reader, the, bo- the book that is, is your comic book comfort food? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Uh, look, I haven't read it in a very, very long time, but uh, Hitman by Garth Ennis and John McRae. There's, I know it's a very odd choice, but it's, there's something beautiful about that book. Um, it's, it has the strongest friendships of any book. I mean, a lot of people always point to Preacher. Um, but in a way I love that Garth had to dial it back to fit into a DC book that it's, that it doesn't go as far as Preacher means that the friendships and the relationships in that are more important. Um, and there are a lot of other books that I go to. I mean, I have a, I have a, I have a list of probably 10 or 15 that I can pick up at any point in time, Marvel and DC, that just make me happy or make me think or make me go, ah, happy place. But I won't go into all of them. Uh, I was going to say you'd be more than welcome to. Um, (laughs) We are always up for recommendations. (laughs) No, 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 no. I I don't want to fall down that hole. Read I Kill Giants, though. Read I Kill Giants before the movie comes out, because, oh, my God, that book. Have you read it? Uh, I I haven't. I've actually been intending to. Uh, Jay, you were saying... Uh, oh, I just said I have. It's great. Okay. That's well, yeah, no. Yeah. I'm going to put that on my list then. It, it made me cry on a plane in front of total strangers on my way back from L.A. to Melbourne when I was missing my family. Oh, man. So, yeah. The last book that did that to me. So yeah. we interviewed Greg Pak at a convention a while back. And so I was trying to bone up on his work beforehand. And I was reading Magneto Testament, you know, the one about Auschwitz, the one about the Holocaust, just on the bus going to yeah. work and just holding back tears around this crowd of strangers, realizing I'd have to, like, be presentable in just a few minutes when the bus stopped. That was rough. I do recommend that series. I do not recommend reading it in public unless you're uh, not modest at all. (laughs) As a writer, that is always my great, that's the best compliment. The amount of times that, you know, angry men will come up to me at a convention and say, you bastard, you made me cry on public transport. It's, it is the best compliment you can get. (laughs) (laughs) Opening hearts and destroying dignity. That's what writing is all about. I mean, that's what comics are all about. (laughs) Yes. Above all. So we actually have a question that we try to ask um, of anyone we talk to who is working on X-Men. We talked a bit about what what your your go-to gentle stuff was, but what's your go-to X-Men? Is there a specific era or a specific team lineup or a specific writer or artist that for you just says X-Men that you keep coming back to as a writer? Or as a fan. Um, Or as a fan. Look... I, I absolutely love Joss Whedon's run. Um, it's one of those things that was interesting. I recently gave it to my son, um, who's 12, and he read through it and he loved it. And, and I loved how much he fell in love with Kitty in that. That was such a, you know, it's a great thing for him. Um, Grant Morrison's run, obviously, I, or I do come back to a bit and I read it again in the lead up to writing Red. Um, a, a bunch of Claremont things. Um, I don't know. There's so much. I've read so much. Uh, yeah, you know, even there are there are things in Ultimate X Men I loved the the Wolverine story where he sits in a cave with this child who's just killed everybody around him and gives him a beer and 
you know, just beautiful emotional moments of characters doing great things. Um, yeah, there's probably too many, but there are such there are such great stories, and I cannot believe that I get to tell one now. I know, God, and that's that's so exciting for for us as well. Like we we have always had favorite writers here and there, and you know, seeing you on this or seeing Dennis doing all new X Men a while back, or I mean, any number of other examples, like as fans, that's just, I, there are so many like excited text exchanges that, that Jay and I have when, when the news hits of, uh, of, of new announcements of, of creative teams on books. And that's the thing. I mean, we, yeah, you know this, but we are just fanboys and fangirls and we just can't believe that we get to play with these amazing toys. Yes, please. <laughs> right. I mean, we've all grown up with X-Men and to get to, to get to interact with what X-Men is becoming, be it, you know, much more centrally, obviously, as, as a writer on your end, or even just as like fans and critics on our end, just getting to be parts of that, like freaking getting drawn into X-Men 92 for a few panels, like 10-year-old me's head would have exploded. Yeah, no, I have, I have two life yeah. events on Facebook and one of them is getting canonically called an, um, was it was it called an it wasn't called a nerd um what did jubilee call us yes getting canonically called a, a dweeb by jubilee <laughs> right that's amazing how we knew yes. we'd made it <laughs> so we're gonna have to head off soon but i i feel like i would be i would be disappointing myself and due diligence um if i didn't get at least somewhat into craft walk in this interview um and, and also there's a question I've, I've been wanting to ask which is your you came into comics as a playwright and a screenwriter and I know a lot of folks who've, who've come into comics via, via movies or TV and a lot of folks who've come into comics via prose fiction, but I'm wondering in particular how or to what extent you've found connections or translations or difficult transitions between media as someone coming into it with a background in playwriting for the, in, in writing for the stage. Well, I would, what I would say is I went into playwriting with a background in comics, with a background as a comics fan. Um, all of my plays are very heavily dialogue-based. It's very quick-fire, jokey-joke, suddenly pull the rug out from under you and terrify you or make you cry, um, just like I do with comics. And I actually found the transition incredibly smooth, and I found the same thing writing television. I just, I've, I've grown up with these things informing me, so when I come to, to do them myself, it, I just, I'm just doing it parrot fashion. And I know this frustrates people um, that that it isn't more difficult, and it is difficult. Though. There's difficulty in all of the, in every moment, in every character, in every script. But moving from one to the other, I actually I enjoy it. But getting to write comics, I mean, I, w I was a playwright, yes, but and I wrote musicals and things, uh, and I was a professional juggler and fire eater, and I juggled knives over my wife. What? That's amazing. <laughs> you can't drop that at the end of an interview, man. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, that's that's where I came from. So I um so I was a street performer. I juggled knives and ate fire and breathed fire and fire twirled and um you know, rode a unicycle badly, um, juggled fire, whatever else. And you know, I did this around Australia and I made money and I got people to give me money in their hats and I did it and then I taught circus skills and drama and writing to kids in low socioeconomic areas for the Royal Children's Hospital. Um, and I did lots and lots of musicals with young people, uh, theatre for young people. Uh, and I've, and this is where I grew up. So I grew up on stage mostly um, as an actor and a singer and then became a professional juggler. And that's all I'm doing in comics. I try to explain this to people that what I'm doing is I still have that same desperation that I had on the street that – I, I say to people that juggling, street performing is the most honest work in the entire world. If I don't entertain you, you can just walk away. If I haven't entertained you enough, you can walk away without putting money in my hat and then I don't eat. Um, and that's how I write. I write with that same fear that I have to entertain you on every single page. I have to have, I have to give you a reason to turn every single page and give you something to shock you or entertain you on the next page. And writing with that fear and writing with that, you know, that hunger that came from, well, if I don't get enough money in my hat, I actually can't drive across the Nullarbor to Perth, which is the longest road in the entire world, and I will die because um, I won't afford petrol. Um, you know, that helps. <laughs> <laughs> well, for what it's worth, uh, 
the performer's terror you describe it makes for some damn fine comics from a couple of fans here uh, who are I think bigger fans now hearing this amazing history that we had no idea about uh, it's effective oh good yeah look I, I just want to be an entertainer I just want to entertain people and if I can make them think or cry or shock them along the way then I'm very happy but at the end of the day I mostly want to make them smile so I have two final questions one of which because we we try to Miles and I are you know, from the States, we've traveled some, but not as much as we'd have liked to. We're obviously not experts on, on any other nation. How do you guys actually have Reavers? Do we have Reavers? Yeah. Like most. Oh of, yeah. 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 I had, I had like two round for dinner. I was going to say most of my knowledge of Australia yeah. comes from, from the, the, the Claremont years when, when the team was living in the outback. So. Yeah. 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 No, I've got like, I've got one in my backyard right now. Um, we had two round for dinner last night. They were absolutely lovely, actually. They get a bad rap, but they're okay. One of them brought a bottle of wine. It was like it was like a seven dollar bottle. It wasn't great, but it did the job. I mean, it's it's the thought that counts, really. Exactly, it really is, and you'd be surprised how thoughtful rivers can be. My, my opinions have changed. I'm gonna have to reevaluate a lot of X Men, huh? Yeah, uh, look, I, look, Chris has been out to Australia. Um, he and I have, we've held koalas together and we've we've been on boat trips together. And I think he really, he understands now that Reavers aren't what he thought they were. <laughs> Jay, you looked like you were about to. Oh, I'm, I'm just concerned about holding, about, about koala holding. <laughs> that stuff is all true, by the way. My, my, cons- my, my knowledge of koalas is, is largely limited to their more unsavory characteristics, so. The chlamydia? Yeah, the chlamydia, the chlamydia and occasional bloodthirst. Yeah, no, that's they're not as violent as you might think. I mean, you know, they're about on par with Reavers. Okay. And I mean, as we've learned from uh, every book Laura Kinney's uh, appeared in, you can have a degree of bloodthirst that is perhaps innate, perhaps just uh, has been attempted to be instilled in you by, you know, genetics or scientists or whatever, and you can still be a lovely and delightful entity. That's exactly right. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, we're we're going to... Uh, we are an entirely, entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of the some of the tiers of support on Patreon come up with acknowledgement on the show from a number of fictional characters and entities. And um, given that we didn't have an obvious one to turn to, I believe that today's villain uh, was Miles's choice and is therefore going to be Mister Sinister. Despite my link to Laura Kinney in the post-credit scene of X-Men Apocalypse, my schemes have been tragically neglected in the adventures of the all-new Wolverine. But now, Tom Taylor will be shepherding another, greater object of my scientific interest in X-Men Red, Jean Elaine Grey. With Scott Summers thoroughly deceased, however, what am I to do? Perhaps Jean Grey's exceptional DNA could be bonded to that of Timothy Hart to create an Omega-level pyrokinetic who could incinerate each timeline in which Lord Apocalypse has ascended. Or perhaps to that of Josh Hall Bachner to produce a Cree-mutant hybrid with psionic might enough to merge all humanity into a single gestalt entity. Or I could go back to the classics create a clone of Cyclops with a different name, send him Jean's way, and hope that no one asks too many questions. So many sinister options. So, Miles, I, I know that you're specifically talking about all-new Wolverine, but you know we're going to get like 70 um is telling you that Sinister has ties to Laura and the 616 too, right? Well, that's why I said all-new. I mean, important to be precise about these things and all that. I feel like Sinister would agree. But with that, let's turn it over to everybody's favorite angry Claremontian narrator. Oh, Ryan McLaughlin. You thought you could cut a few corners, save a few minutes, and have your dreams in hand by sunset. Little did you know that Chad Vesetic was a step ahead. And now, the last order of number 25 with chicken is forever beyond your reach. And speaking of thanks, Tom, thank you again so much for being on the show. This has been delightful. We've been hoping to talk to you for ages, and it's wonderful to finally do so. Thank you for having me. And, and yes, I'm, I'm a long-term listener, and I love everything you do. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks, and likewise, very, very much. And thank you also, this goes a couple of years back, for your official confirmation on Twitter that, that uh, Jonathan the Wolverine would be friends with our dumb cat. Like that's, we, we tell her that sometimes when she's having bad days. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> No, I'm very happy to hear that. 
Yeah, I, I hope they have a friendship that lasts through the ages. <laughs> I suspect that their never meeting and the fact that one of them is fictional will help a lot with that. But perhaps. <laughs> but aside from All New Wolverine and X-Men Red, which everybody should totally read because they're wonderful, uh, where can people find you online or otherwise? And in comics, because I know you're writing a bunch for DC too right now. Yeah? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm at Tom Taylor Made on Twitter. Um, I'm currently writing Injustice 2 for DC. I'm writing X-Men Red. I'm writing All New Wolverine. Uh, I have a TV show called The Deep which if you like my writing, you would probably love. It's about a multiracial family of underwater explorers who live in a submarine and their adventures. Uh, that's on Netflix and BBC uh, and doing incredibly well and has big announcements this week. Um, and what else do I do? Oh, and I'm also writing a new thing for Marvel, which will be announced in a few weeks. So stay tuned for that one too. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. And if you'd like to leave us a rating and a review for any of those services, well, I guess except our website, you could try there, but uh, it might work, then we would really, really appreciate it. That helps people find the show, which we love. I mean, you can leave something there, but we're going to be the only ones who see it. Or I guess anyone else who reads the comments. Anyway, you can also check out explainthexmen.com for extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, please check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Thanks again to our guest this episode, Tom Taylor, whom you can find in Marvel on All New Wolverine and X-Men Red and elsewhere. And we're going to link to all of those in the companion to this episode. If you want to click over to explainthexmen.com, we'll have those up by the time this is. And of course, be sure to come see us at Emerald City Comic Con, March 1st through 4th in Seattle. Next week in Uncanny X-Men, it's time for a family reunion. With the worst Rasputin. Grigori? Mikhail. Okay. Okay.